Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Well, we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Luke as we're on this journey as uh, Luke lays out this good news, these glad tidings of Jesus Christ and his mission here on earth to seek and save that was which was lost. And, uh, and as we go through, we're in chapter 11 now where the disciples had asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And so he did. He gave them the, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, the pattern of prayer, uh, the model prayer. Uh, and then he, he encouraged us to pray persistently, to ask, keep asking, seek, keep seeking, knock, keep knocking. And he used the uh, illustration of a father giving blessings to a child. How much more will our Heavenly Father give us His Holy Spirit if only we would ask? And so just reading between the lines there, not only can you receive God's Holy Spirit, that it would dwell in you and overflow you and manifest through you into this world, but that Jesus would encourage you ought to seek His Holy Spirit, ask, and it will be given you. And uh, this is something that's important. And last week he got into uh, casting out demons, evil spirits, fallen angels, and the work of darkness in this world. And some of the religious leaders, believe it or not, accused him of doing it by the power of Satan. They would call him Beelzebub. And he says, you completely have, you're, you're illogical, right? A house divided against itself can't stand. If I'm doing a good thing, it can't be because of Satan, okay? Because Satan doesn't do good stuff. This is the finger of God. If it's come in your midst and you're seeing this person delivered, then, then Jesus is in the house, okay? And as he's finishing up this teaching on that, uh, one lady from the crowd, you know, blessed is your mother, right? And, and he goes, more blessed, which is to say Mary is blessed, but more blessed are those who hear and keep my word. And so in this, we already see some key components of what Jesus is trying to give us, these glad tidings, this good news. How should we live in this world and the world to come? We live in a life of prayer. We live by the Holy Spirit. We live in His Word and living out His Word. So we come to the second part of chapter 11, if you will. In the first part, we get the prayer, and then he demonstrates it in receiving the Holy Spirit and rejecting evil spirits. And this is kind of a spiritual warfare thing. And now the second part of the battlefield that Luke lays out for us here is not only the spiritual realm of spiritual warfare, but those who seek after signs. Signs and wonders, right? And we're going to see seeking for signs this morning. We're going to see seeing signs this morning. And we're also going to see signs or signaling sin. Okay? So buckle up. Here we go. Verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered there, okay, so this is a big bunch of people, and they're, they're, they're pushing in because they want to hear. They want to see. 
They want to know what's going on, who's this Jesus, what's going on. While the crowds were thickly gathered there, he began to say, this is an awesome crowd. Wow, church growth, it's working. Thanks, uh, you know, George Barna, that those tips on how to grow a church are really working. That's not what he said, right? He's not out trying to build a crowd. He's building his kingdom, okay? And, 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 but his disciples and those who are gatherers along, tag-alongs, they're looking for something different. He says, this is an evil generation. And that, that idea of evil, it's people that are always causing contention, always causing strife, always quarreling, always just stirring the pot. It sounds like our generation. And, and, and sadly, sometimes I'm party to it, okay? I think we all participate from time to time. You live in it, right? And we're going to be living in the world. We're just not to be of the world. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But nevertheless, we live in an evil generation, and it seeks a sign. Now, signs, just to, because we're going to talk about signs all morning long, just to get the basics down. A sign is something that points to or describes another thing. And you could call that other thing the thing that the sign points to. But the sign isn't the thing. It's a sign. Did I keep that simple enough and make it easy? Okay. <laughs> well, because so often we see signs and they're filled with information and directions. They might be a stop sign, or it might be an off-ramp sign. That's not my off-ramp. That is my off-ramp. But we don't park at the sign and say, I found the sign. The sign tells us how to proceed, or sometimes how to stop, right? If we heed the sign, the signs will be much like the Word of God, those who hear the Word and keep it. These signs are signaling, signifying. That's the root word in all of this, right? Sign, signal, signifying. They're pointing to or describing something other than the sign itself. And so when you think about it, what is Jesus saying? This evil generation always seeks after a sign. Wouldn't that be so cool? Next Sunday, I'll come in and I'll get you each a sign, and I'll give it to you. And it might be a sign for my favorite hamburger place, or it might be a stop sign. How would you like, I went to church. What happened to church today? Oh, pastor gave me a sign. Really? Yeah, here it is. It's a stop sign. You're laughing, and I'm being stupid, but how stupid is that? Seeking after a sign. We didn't come here for a sign this morning. We came here for Jesus. So, this evil generation, it seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. 
He goes on to another sign. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So we get two signs here, the sign of Jonah and the sign of the queen of the south. So this is the queen of Sheba. And in this, both of these are signs. Jonah's a sign, the queen of Sheba is a sign. What are the signs for, class? To point to Jesus, point to God, point to heaven, point to the kingdom of God. These are not the signs. They, well, they are the signs, but they're not the thing, okay, that the sign points to, if you will. So look at this really quickly, uh, the sign of Jonah. We, we hear the story of Jonah in the book of Jonah. He's got a whole book named for him. And in Jonah chapter 3, I just want to bounce on this just a little bit, verses 3 and 5. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This is after he ran away, after he got on the ship going the wrong way, after he got in a storm, after they said, what are we going to do be saved? And he says, throw me in the ocean and you'll be all right. And they did and they were all right. But he, Jonah, was swallowed by a great fish and spent three days in the belly of this great fish. It says, and this is just one of the most miraculous things in, I can imagine, after three days he prayed, how on earth do you wait three days to start praying when you're in the belly of a fish? But when he did pray, God heard. The fish barfed him up on the beach. Here he comes out, probably bleached from all the digestive juices, his hair is all whatever, and just gnarly. And he walks into Nineveh, and he starts preaching to them 40 days and then destruction. You know the story of Jonah, right? It says uh, in Jonah, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. It says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, Now that you're on the beach, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. You're to share the word. Point to me. Give them the message. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. It would take three days to walk across the city. Big city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So, and this is cool, the people of Nineveh believed God. No doubt. Here's a walking dead man just walking down the street. Forty days of destruction. That guy sounds like he knows, looks like a sign. He looks like somebody who knows what he's talking about. He is like death warmed over, back from the grave, right? And he's telling us it's coming our way. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And they published it throughout all of Nineveh, saying that they should worship God. And God relented. Okay, that's the sign of Jonah. We read in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12, a similar passage to this one right here, in 12 verse 40, uh, Jesus speaking, saying... For as Jonah was, in the, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so really this sign of Jonah, this sign of Jonah is a sign of death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 2, when he's talking about the temple and that it's going to be destroyed, in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says to those people challenging him when he turned over the money changers' temp or tables, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is the sign, death, burial, and resurrection. I've already given it to your fathers with Jonah. Jesus declared it at the temple. And this is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, it's really the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of all that we preach. I could give a, a, a list, several pages of verses that speak about the centrality of the resurrection. That is the very heart of what we believe. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, and now I'm giving it to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the heart of of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ did not rise from the dead, the scriptures teach us, we are most pitiful of all people, for we have no hope of resurrection or glory. But he did. He rose from the grave. One of the most attested to facts of human history all of his enemies, all the adversaries, the Jews didn't like him, the Romans didn't like him, the Greeks didn't like him, and yet in his day and age, headline news, this rabbi from Galilee who claimed to be the Son of God, the Christ, was crucified, buried, and on third day rose again. Everybody knew it in those days, and it's the central fact of all human history. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe on his death, burial, and resurrection shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the heart of all of it. And Jesus is saying, you want a sign? I gave you Jonah, but you're not seeing the sign. Didn't I just teach you? Pray, ask, seek. Keep seeking, knock, it will be given to you. But instead of giving what the Father wants to give you, His Holy Spirit, you want a sign. Really? What a waste of your prayers. You could have His Holy Spirit, you could have His Son, Jesus Christ, you could have eternal life, and you're missing it all. And so the sign, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation, right? And so he's, he's making it very clear. I am flesh and blood, spirit, I am that sign come to life, standing right here in front of you. You want to see a sign? You're looking at him. I am the thing <laughs> that 
all the scriptures point to. He also talks about the queen of the south, uh, Queen Sheba, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. Kind of a little package on this. She comes from Ethiopia up to visit King Solomon, the wisest, most wealthiest man ever lived uh, in the Old Testament times. And we read in chapter 9 at verse 5, Then she said to the king, to Solomon, It was true, the report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. I came, I saw, I was seeking, I found. And indeed, half the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame which I heard. Happy are your men and happy... I'm sorry. Happy... Are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom? And listen to what the queen of Sheba says. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God. Because your God has loved Israel and established them forever, therefore he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. Blessed be your God who made you to sit on the throne of his kingdom. And now what does Jesus say? The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. We received the message. We repented. We lived. And the queen of the south, she visited Solomon and one greater than Solomon is here amongst you. Solomon was the son of David. It doesn't get much better than David and the son of David. But Jesus is the son of David, much better than Solomon. Little funny piece in this that we don't necessarily see so quickly, but people reading this when Luke wrote it would never have missed that these two examples of Nineveh and of the queen of Ethiopia these are Gentiles who saw what God was saying. They were seeking a sign. They saw the sign. They responded to the sign, and they received life. And yet these people, how many hundreds of years later, they're still looking for more signs. And, and, and this is what Jesus is saying. You're, you're misplacing your prayer and your passion and your, what you expect to see from me. He goes on in verse 33. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Jesus put it a little bit differently, but same thought in Matthew. In chapter 6, at verse 22, he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Okay, same thought. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And here is now Jesus kind of putting a hinge between these people seeking a sign, 
but they can't see the sign. And they can't see what the sign is pointing to. There's something wrong with their seer, with their eye, right? And, and we talk about that the eyes are the window to the soul, right? It's fun. Lifeline, talking about parenting. You got a child. They're doing something quite not quite right or whatever. You say, look me in the eye. Man, try to get them to do that. Because we know that when we look in each other's eye, our soul is laid bare. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is the window. This is the windshield, however you want to say it. These are the spectacles. And if your spectacles are all covered and dirty and dark, no light is coming in. And you will be dark inside, right? It's like you've pulled the drapes. Even though you're seeking a sign, you have to open the curtains. You're not even going to see the sign. Even though it's shining, it's standing right there in front of you. In John's gospel, uh, he laid it out kind of this way in John chapter 1, speaking of in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He goes on to say, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He goes on to say in chapter 3, when he's having this meeting with Nicodemus, who can't see Messiah standing right in front of him, he goes on to say in John 3, 18, and he who believes in him, this is the Son of Man, I just quoted John 3, 16, if you believe in Jesus, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation. That light, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. An evil generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the prophet Jonah. Okay? Death, burial, resurrection. Can you see? He goes in verse 20 of John 3, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And then again, John writes in his first letter, 1 John, in chapter 1 at verse 5, This is the message, this is the sign, this is the word, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so Jesus is now explaining to these people who are seeking a sign. They can't see the difference between Satan and God casting out a demon or destroying the strong man, and they're having a very diff difficult time, and it really goes back to the first step. Pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you step off on the wrong foot, you're just not going to get it right. 
You have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added to you. If you want a sign, it's probably going to be in the back of the pickup truck that comes for the ride, right? If that's all the things, but you've got to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And if you're not seeking God, if you're not seeking Jesus, if you're not seeking eternal life, if you're not seeking forgiveness of sins, if you're not seeking hope of glory, if you're not seeking righteousness in this world, you're never going to see it, even if it's standing right in front of you. This is basically what Jesus is talking about. Your lamp is bad. Your eye is bad. You're full of darkness. We have this children's song that we teach our children. Be careful, little children, what you see, what you hear, what you say, what you do. For we have a father up above who's looking down in love. Be careful, little children what you see, what you say, what you hear, what you do. Take heed how you hear. Take care how you look, how you see. Application, here we are. The year of our Lord, 2023. That's a good place to start. Whose year is it? It's the Lord's year. Okay, and as we look at the year of the Lord and we watch from day to day, from moment to moment, news article or phone calls that you get or, or whatever, start off on the right foot. This is the year of the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, and we clean our windshield and we let the light in and we see the world in light of what Jesus has promised us. Death, it's part of the package, burial, and resurrection, glory. That's, you've got to see clearly if you're going to understand what all these signs are pointing to. And when you start reading the news and you look at the economy or the culture or a whole list of things we could go on all morning about, are we stepping off on the right foot? Are we seeking His righteousness? Are we seeking His Son? Are we seeking with His Holy Spirit? Kind of a funny thing on this, you know, I've, I've said, and most of you have heard me say it at some point or other, um, winter, thank, thank you Jesus for the snow this morning, I went out and shoveled before y'all got here, but you would never know it. <laughs> Right? It just started piling up again. But thank you guys that are out there keeping it clear for us. But I would often say, uh, since I've moved to Idaho, because we've lived in different places in our life, winter is my fourth favorite season. <laughs> right? And out of four, that puts it in last place. And for the longest time, I really had a beef with winter time. It just bugged me. I get dark and gloomy and irritable and I don't like winter, right? And it's weird because when we were young, we lived in the Sierra Nevadas where minimum we got 20 feet of snow a year and then it got deep on some years after that. But we would play 
we would go out and we would just cross country ski or I love climbing frozen waterfalls or whatever. Wintertime was fantastic. It was a good time to play and I loved it. And I'm like, what's the dealio? Now, here I am in Idaho. Am I getting old? What, what's wrong with me? I, I don't like winter anymore. I, I shoveled snow the other day. I had a glorious time. I love shoveling snow. It's therapy. I, I, I don't have a problem with shoveling snow. I like to play in it. So why don't I like winter? It makes me sad. You may have heard of sad. S-A-D. Seasonal Affective Disorder. And there's actually a thing. When your daylight is decreased, your body doesn't produce as much serotonin. Okay, and this is a hormone that regulates sleep and uh, alertness and all these different kinds of things, even how you process your mind. It's a neurotransmitter, and you have decreased serotonin, and so you start falling into depression, seasonal affect disorder. Well, here's the good news of my little bird trail. Once I figured out what it was, I'm liking winter a whole lot more. Yes, the days are short and the nights are long, but now I know who the enemy is. It's that serotonin. It's, it's not, and, and I can go out the door and I can take advantage of every daylight hour and rejoice in the daylight and work as much as I can, take advantage of the long nights and maybe get a little more hunkering down than I usually do. And, and winter all of a sudden has moved up into, I can't say which place, it's probably still fourth. <laughs> but it changes things when your perception changes, when your vision is cleared and you can let the light in and you know what's going on, all of a sudden it vanquishes darkness and depression and all of these things. So, We've seen Jesus now speaking on those who would seek a sign, but they can't see the sign even when it's standing right in front of him. And now we're going to get into some people who think they are the sign or they are people who are signaling a truth that's not true. In fact, what they're doing is they're showing their sin. They think they're signaling, virtue signaling, but what they're really doing is revealing that they can't see at all. They have dark windows to their soul. So, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and sat down to eat. Now, this is rather interesting because he's had some run-ins with the Pharisees off and on all along. He's not really been enamored to them. They're not really, um, you know, too close to him. And yet this guy wants to have dinner with them. Now, remember, there are some good Pharisees out there, right? We, we read about Nicodemus. I mentioned him earlier, Joseph of Arimathea, who uh, would have him buried in his tomb. We read in the book of Acts that many Pharisees did believe and became followers of Jesus Christ. So we don't know what the whole story is here, but in some ways it almost looks like a setup. And I'll explain as we get into it in just a minute. So as he spoke, he's saying all these things, evil generation seeking a sign, no sign will be given you except death, burial, and resurrection, okay? A little bit of shorthand, if you will, there. And as he's speaking, a certain Pharisee asked him to come to dinner. Hey, come to my house, have dinner. So 
he went and sat down to eat. I like that about Jesus. Free food? It's a meal? I'll be there. You do realize this is how he made his way. He didn't have income. He, didn't, he wasn't supported. He didn't have any kind of government you know, supplements or anything like that. He got a meal when people gave him a meal. If they offer him a meal, yeah, I'll go in. And, you know, it works the same for you and I. So he went in and sat down to eat. Now, when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, we're going to get into this washing before dinner. It's a, it's a Jewish custom. It comes from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the Jewish collection of traditions, okay? Not what is in the Word of God, not what is the law of God, but this fence they would build around the Word of God, lest anybody break through and get straight to God from the Old Testament. So they made all these different rituals about how you should live your life. And in this, um, Jesus didn't follow the extremely technical, rigid requirements of ceremonial washing practiced by the majority of the culture. In fact, there's an episode in Mark's gospel that happened, it's a different episode, with his disciples in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding their tradition of the elders. And so they have these washings. It's called urkats in the Hebrew. And each type of uh, situation requires a washing. If you're going to eat bread, you would have to wash your hand in a ceremonial way. They don't use soap. It has nothing to do with getting your hands clean. What it is, is virtue signaling that you are right with God because I'm upholding the traditions. And it kind of interesting how this goes. For these ceremonial washings, special stone vessels of water were kept because ordinary water might be ceremonially unclean. So they always reserved special water in the house. And in performing the ceremonial washing, one started with at least enough of this water to fill one and a half eggshells. That's part of the rules. It's got to be that much. And one began by pouring the water over the hands, starting at the fingers and running down towards the wrist. And then it would re be repeated on the other hand. And they would do it three times. And they let it, then they do it this way. And then they would wash the palms by grinding the fist into each palm. And then they would reverse, and they would pour the water over the wrist and let it drip off the fingers, and then pour the water over the wrist and drip off the fingers. And Jesus didn't do that. The disciples didn't do that, right? You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, you put your right hand in, and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Well, that's what it's all about. It's just a tradition. It's just a show. It's just virtue signaling. It has nothing to do with sanitation or health. It's just saying, I'm righteous. I'm self-righteous. And we're going to see that Jesus doesn't take kindly to self-righteousness. Okay? It's interesting as this goes along. 
uh, a really strict Jew in Jesus' day would do this not just before meals, but also between each course of the meal, virtue signaling. The rabbis were deadly serious about this, saying that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. That's how much they frowned on people that didn't wash their hands. A rabbi who once failed to do this was considered to be excommunicated, and another rabbi historically was imprisoned by the Romans, and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking. And he almost died, and he became regarded as a national hero for his righteousness. Okay, so this is, this is the stage. This is what's happening right here. It's not just like your mom says, your hands are filthy, go wash before you eat. It has nothing to do with that. It's virtue signaling, the signs that people think are going to draw or attract the world to them. <laughs> what kind of sign is that? Look at me, I'm all holy, I'm all good. That is really sad, but that's what's happening here. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Or that greed is really grasping or robbery. And what he's saying here is you are stealing the glory from God and grabbing it, you're greedy you're taking it to yourself. That's what, he's, that's what the translation would really kind of come out in all of this. He says, the outside of the cup and dish are clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. You've got a bad heart. You've got a dark eye. Foolish ones. Now, a fool is somebody who... Uh, is not thinking. To say somebody is foolish, that's without thought. You're not thinking when he says foolish ones. You guys are not thinking. This makes no sense whatsoever, right? If you went to somebody's house and, you know, you, you go to dinner with them, right? And you have dinner and when the meal is over, uh, we clear the dishes and you take that bowl and uh, you've got a dog, so you lay it down and the dog licks the bowl out and then you look and the outside wasn't dirty and, you know, nobody, so you just put it back in the cupboard till next time. Well, the outside's clean, but the inside is corrupted and they're doing nothing about cleaning out the inside. It's all show. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things. And that word such things or that phrase is really translated, give alms of what is inside as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. So, saying you need to be giving a lot more than just a show, just a signal. You need, to, you need to be giving out of your heart. And he starts in now on woes, and there's going to be a number of woes. Woe is oi, oi vey, 
destruction, grief, alas. When he is saying this to them, he is not condemning them, but he is letting them know, like the watchman on the wall, that they are standing on the precipice of hell. They are just right there teetering on the brink. Whoa, right? What do you tell a horse when you come up to the edge of a canyon? Whoa, we need to pull back on these reins. Whoa, you're about to just pitch right in headlong into eternal damnation. So it's extremely strong. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now, I'm not going to break every one of these down, but I'm going to sit on this one for just a second. For starters, it's okay to sit in the front row here at the Springs. Pick any seat that you want, just not one that somebody else is already seated in, okay? And I recognize you sit where you do for all variety of reasons. When we lived in the Philippines, I went to this church in the Philippines. It was beautiful, like lots of people, but it had basically the backdrop to the stage and the roof, but all the walls were wide open so the air could move through because it was so hot and so humid. And we would go, and all these people would just cluster up in weird little pockets, like you guys, in the gym or in the... No, not like you. I'm teasing. But they come in and they always go to the same little pocket. And it took me a couple years before I realized, why don't you guys come and sit up front? It's the best. They're free. Good, you know, good seats and all that. Because there was fans on the wall, oscillating fans. And wherever the fan hit, that's where the people would fill up first. They were taking the best seat in the synagogue. Okay? And Jesus is claiming that for these guys, right? In in our day and age, it would be like taking the front row. Or if you went to a wedding and the guests of honor were up there, right? The bride, the groom, the mom and dad, the grandpa and the grandma. They did this to Cheryl and I more than one time. They would kick grandpa and grandma off the stage so we could sit there because they wanted to be able to tell people that we had missionaries sit at our head table. Talk about how humiliating. But Jesus would tell a parable. When you go into somebody's house, sit in the back. So you guys that are sitting in the back, you're following the Bible, okay? <laughs> Don't sit in the front in case the master of ceremonies comes and says, I'm sorry, Warren and Michelle, we need your space. You need to go back because somebody more important just came in. How embarrassing would that be? Better to sit in the back and I say, hey, come on up. Water's fine. It's fine, you know, and there's room for you up here. And here's the dealio, and this is why I wanted to camp on this for a little while. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love, okay? Not just that you sit in the best seats, but you love the best seats. You live, you love the preeminence. You love the reputation. You love the perks. You love all these things that are showered on you. If you're paying close attention, I've said you six times now. You, 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 you. It's all about me. You love that. It's okay to sit in the front row or the back row. It's okay to sit wherever you want to sit, as I said. But Jesus is talking about reputation versus character. Reputation is what other people say about me or what I say about me. Character is who I am. Character is who God knows who I am. And character is far more important than reputation or position or status. 
I've heard it said in our fellowship that, you know, some of the people around here, and you could probably think of some of them, who are some of the important people at the church? I've had people say that to me before. <gasps> you know, that guy, he's an important guy at the church. Let me dispel that notion right now. The only person that we reverence or give way to here is Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is exactly equal. And more often than not, that person who appears to be an important person is probably just a little bit louder and outgoing and more public showy than the next person over. But it doesn't matter. In God's eyes, every single person here is equally important. Please, please, church, understand that. There are no important people here. There's only an important God. Woe to you if you love that. Pantheca, be careful. Verse 43, and I'll start moving a little faster. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces. They just like that recognition. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, two-faced, right? For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk on them are not aware of them. And this has to do out of uh, being defiled by touching a dead thing. And the, the rule was that you're supposed to point, paint the outside of the grave or the sepulcher white so somebody accidentally didn't step on it. Because if they did, they would be defiled. And J Jesus is now comparing these people to graves full of dead men's bones, okay? Uh, and they're bringing destruction on others, not just themselves, then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Really? That's astute of you. Exactly. That is exactly what I am doing. Jesus is laying in to these holier-than-thou, self-righteous, legalistic, religious bigots. And we need to be really careful about that team when we think that somehow we got it all down, we've all figured out. So, he said, woe to you, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with your fingers, right? In the, in the scriptures, they had counted up 248 thou shalls and 365 thou shall nots, okay, for 613 laws in their Old Testament, but on top of that, they piled the oral traditions, the Talmud, the, the practices and the rules like the hand-washing rituals in the Mishnah, and so you just start at 613 rules, regulations, laws, and then it just explodes, right? It's like our, our legislators and how they can take a little teeny thing and just make a mountain out of it, and this is what Jesus is saying. You lay all these burdens on people, but you won't lift a finger to help them. I think I skipped a verse, didn't I? Yeah, 42. This would be a good time to go back there. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass, pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What is Jesus saying here? It's more important to do justice to somebody or to love somebody than to tithe. No, you do all of them. You tithe. You do all the things that the law lays out. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. 
And when I talk about that, that's the Torah. That's the way that you should walk. It's the directions, heeding the voice of God. And, and you study to show yourself approved, a workman that rightly divides the word of truth. And you know what is and what isn't allowed. And in that, but you do all of the above, but you don't do something to the exclusion of justice, mercy, kindness, love. He says, you need to do those things. If you're not, these guys are not doing these things. There's no love in their hearts. If there's any love, it's for themselves. There's no love for another person. So jump back down here. Woe to you, verse 47, for you build tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Huh. You're all like, oh, yeah, see that? That's a beautiful, beautiful mausoleum. We built that. I mean, we did a fundraiser here at the Springs. And oh, isn't it just a, mag- mag- a magnificent thing? But your father's is the one that killed him. How, how is it you're trying to justify yourself? Self-righteous. He goes in verse 48. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. These are heavy things that Jesus is saying. You're going to have to carry all of this burden because you're laying claim to it. You're actually asking for it. Really? He says, verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Abel was the first prophet. We read about him in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. Cain slew his brother Abel. And so he's the first martyr in the Bible that the Jews would be reading, these lawyers, these scribes, these Pharisees, and Zechariah. And Zechariah is the last martyr recorded in their Bible. Now, it's recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And if you go and you look in your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 24, and you see the death of Zechariah as he's martyred for his faith, you say, well, there's a whole bunch more after that. The reason that it's listed this way is because in the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Tanakh. And it's, it's a contraction of three portions of the Hebrew Bible. Ta for Torah. That's the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get into the two other parts of the Tanakh, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings. And the way that the Hebrew Bible is structured, the last book of a Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. And they don't break it into two pieces. They just call it Chronicles, but it's the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus is saying, you killed them all. Every prophet, anybody God has ever sent to you, you seek a sign. You want a sign. You can't see a sign. Your eyes are blinded. Even if it's standing right in front of you, shining brightly, you kill these guys that God sent to you. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and those who were entering, you hindered. Now, one of the things about the lawyers in those days, the scribes, they often in their synagogue were the ones who were entrusted with the key to the cabinet in which they kept the scrolls for 
reading from the scriptures on Sabbath day. When people would come, they would unlock it, they'd open it up, they'd get the scroll out. And because they just didn't have scrolls like we have Bibles, okay? They were all handwritten, they were very rare, probably one in a village. And, and it would be there in that chest. And these guys had the keys. So in one level, he's saying, you have the keys, but you won't even let people in to see this. But really, I believe the deeper thing is that key uh, that he speaks of, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. And in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You guys got the whole Bible, if you will. You got all the Word of God from A to Z. You've got the whole thing, and yet you're not sharing it. You're not delivering it transparently and freely. You're keeping it locked up and reserved from the people. And what is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of God and knowledge of the Holy One. Who's the Holy One? Jesus Christ, the Son of God the light of the world, and you guys are keeping it locked up. Not only are you not seeing it, but you're not sharing it. And what you're doing instead is signaling all your sins. It's like a card player who just shows you his hand, and it's just full of all kinds of wickedness. And that's what Jesus is calling them out on. You did not enter yourselves, and those who are entering, you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees said, oh, thank you, teacher. We, we were so misguided until you came up and straightened us out. It's not how, right? They're self-righteous. They're not going to back down, even in the face of God. And he said these things to them. The scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things lying in wait for him and seeking, seeking, ask, keep asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. And your Father in heaven who loves you will generously give you his Holy Spirit that you could do the more important things of the law, justice, and love. Well, what are these guys seeking? Seeking that they might catch him in something he might say, that they might accuse him. Be careful, little children, what you hear, what you say, what you see, what you do. Check our hearts. Check our eyes. Check how we're seeing the world. Check how we approach people around us. Make sure that we're filled up with light and life and love before we move to judgment or our actions. Amen? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you tell it like it is. And you're not afraid to step on our toes. Lord, I, I pray that if my... I offends you, if my tongue offends you, if my hand offends you, that you would cut it off rather than I enter into hellfire. Help me check my heart and my spirit by your Holy Spirit. Search me. 
Know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. I give you permission, Lord, to do heart surgery. Cut away the flesh. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might live with you today and forever according to your promise of death, burial, and resurrection into glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.